Hello, you're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly podcast where some weeks I explain a story from history to my friend... Dave Anthony. You didn't say your name. Who knows? No idea. What did I say? No, you didn't say who you were. I'm Dave Anthony. You you start and you say, hi, welcome to The Dollop. I'm Dave Anthony. Yeah. Okay, all right. All right, here we go. We'll keep this all in. People love this part. (laughs) Hama, 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 hama. Hello, you're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly podcast where every week, or some weeks, I, Gareth Reynolds, explain a story to history to... What? You've been in the room when I've done this, right? What did I do wrong that time? The whole thing's just... It's off. You're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly podcast where every week I, Gareth Reynolds, explain a story to my friend... Dave Anthony, who's no, who has no idea what it's about. But yeah, that's, I, you fucked up bad, too. That was a fucking... Woo! Gary. God, you want a little hit of dude? I'll do one buck. <laughs> people say this is funny? Not Gary, Gareth. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. <laughs> you are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville! <laughs> A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle and do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. February 5th. (laughs) Fuck you. 1943. (laughs) Nolan Bushnell was born into the world in the suburbs of gorgeous Clearfield, Utah. Mm -hmm. Bushnell grew up in a working class area outside of Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. He was raised as a Mormon. But was not fond of his religion and his surroundings, and early found he was a little different. You said 1848, right? I said 1943. Oh, 1943. Same thing. Those are all the same. No, they're very, very different. February 5th, 1943 was when he was born. Jesus Christ. I mean, even I retain more than that. Let's just get back to Nathan. Okay. Um, He was a little bit different than everyone in his town. For funny, he liked to play pranks. Uh-oh. Like the uh, time that he convinced everyone there was a UFO invasion by Ben Franklining, ben Franklining a 300-watt light bulb to a kite. The prank later ended in an alfalfa field farm where Bushnell had led the police department to. Wait. Yeah, what? <laughs> okay, go ahead. No, no. So what? he put a light bulb on a yeah. kite, he put, and, he, and was it a thunderstorm? And There must used- have been a storm. There must have been and some sort of storm. And then the cops storm. chased it? And then, the, and then he convinced people that it was a UFO, and then it ended up that the cops chased it and chased him. And, and was he with the kite? So he's with the kite. I, I, do, I think he was with the kite. I just assume he's with the kite. If he just, like, tied the kite down and they came and we're like, holy shit. He's a terrible prankster so far. That's a great prank. Um... He also wouldn't stay Mormon for long. He became what he described as a heathen after an argument with a priest over religion. So, okay, that happens a lot. Yeah, as that should happen. Um, Straight to heathen. You will learn Bushnell is a pretty fucking awesome dude. As a teen, Bushnell worked at an amusement park where he would watch people lose their shit over ring toss and skee-ball and games like that. And the fun of this environment would stick with him forever, David. Oh, good. For college, Bushnell ended up attending the University of Utah as an electrical engineer. A ute. But one day, Davy Gravy, that's you, everything would change. Bushnell walked into a department lab where people were playing Space War on a mini computer. Essentially the first game ever. Bushnell was shocked by it. When it was finally his turn, he played and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He was manipulating this digital spaceship and shooting the digital enemies. Holy fuck. Imagine. And he was controlling it. Now, with his hands, not with, with his, his mind. No, sorry, I should be clear. With his hands. <laughs> okay. There was no mind. I'm sorry. Because it seems like a guy who might control it with his mind. No, 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 no. Okay. Hands, all hands. So he saw this, and he knew that people would lose their shit for something like this if it was in like the amusement park that he used to work at. Sure, because he'd seen people go crazy. He'd seen people freak over, out over ring oh, toss. Yeah. Which... You're tossing a ring on a bottle. I think that's no. I know you get a prize. You get yeah. a pig or whatever. It's like the goldfish game where you throw the ping pong ball into the goldfish bowl, you and then the goldfish dies in it. You don't have to explain the the simplicity and awesomeness of carnival games to me. Okay, I All get right. them. All right, cool. <laughs> so he so he wanted to do this, but he had no way of doing anything near that. Computers were far too expensive, and he didn't have that kind of money. It was all just an impossible thought in his dreamer head until one day when he met Ted Dabney. Here we go. 
Dabney worked uh, with electronics in the Marine Corps and had an inexpensive way to bring Bushnell's vision to life. Dabney had figured out a way to change a TV signal into a bunch of dots and squiggles with nothing more than a video board, and that would do. So Seriously? Boom, they had a plan, yeah. Okay. Well, and so these, th- these are guys I don't understand. Like, these are guys who look at something and go, oh, these I, can are turn, I, yeah, I can turn this into something. Yes. Whereas I would look at the TV screen and go, That's, there's a lot of snow on yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and essentially, like, if you think about it, like, you know, all that stuff you can do with computers, if you can just do that on a TV monitor, like, yeah. if you're able to, you know, work with that, and yeah. that's kind of what Dabney brought I feel to the pong, equation. I feel Pong coming. You should not. <laughs> Hold on, I need to make some quick revisions. <laughs> So uh, Bushnell and Debbie went to work, and they made their own coin-operated... Wait, is this going to be about me? Because I was the first kid in my neighborhood to have Pong. No, this is not... What, a e- what an ego on you. <laughs> this is about me. No, Dave, this is not a fucking... I'm not doing a dollop on you I that you don't know about. I can't believe we're finally doing one about me. Good this is God. good. This is now, good. if we did it where you did one about me, there is still a chance I would have no idea what the topic was not about. Not until it was over. Yeah, not until it was over. <laughs> like, Wait! That's me! And then Jose was picked. <laughs> So uh, Bushnell and Dabney went to work on their own uh, coin-operated space war game that they called Computer Space. Uh-huh. Catchy name. Uh, Bushnell had the vision for what the actual device should look like. It was going, if it was going to attract people away from conversations in bars and public places, he wanted it to be sexy. So what they ended up building would be the standard for all upright arcade games from then on. Are you taking a selfie right yeah. now? Good God. You listen. This dude designed the first stand-up arcade game, you self-involved prick. I was listening. Is it about me? Let me take selfies. What are you, Paris Hilton? Well, if there's a dollop Put about, your fucking phone if down. If there's a dollop about me, I feel like dude, we should take pictures of me. It's not about you. Okay. Good God. It seems like it might be about me. So, what they ended up building would be the standard for all upright arcade games. For Asteroids! Upping the sex appeal for the public, Bushnell decided to launch the game with an ad featuring a sexy model in negligee. And the rest Wait. is history. Huh? Okay, wait. What? So it's it's a it's an arcade game to put in arcades. It is the first, yes, exactly. And he's going to make an ad for it in a he's, in a magazine or a TV ad? I uh, just ads, you know? You know so it's just a, it's buses. just a hot chick in negligee standing next to an arcade game. Not only an arcade game, something called computer space. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing makes my nipples harder than computer space. I mean, these guys are geniuses in some ways and not geniuses in the other. Yeah, <laughs> they definitely was. They're, they're 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 not getting laid is now crossing over into. So, are you telling me you're shocked that computer nerds didn't have a grasp on how to appeal to men? It is kind of yeah. yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, the game flopped. <sighs> what? I don't I don't think it had anything to do with the ad campaign. Uh, people didn't understand the look of the game. They didn't really understand the concept. They felt that it was too complicated. Was it called? What's it called? Space Camp. It was called <laughs> Computer Space. <laughs> space Camp is honestly better. Um, Fuck, I love Computer so, Space. Hey, after that hey, flop, yeah. You want to go down to the the Dairy Queen and play some Computer Space? Yeah. Oh man, for sure. <laughs> See, it doesn't computer work at all. Space. <laughs> sure, there'll probably be a model in lingerie there. Wait, is that where you take a computer and put it into space? Yep. Okay. <laughs> That would be amazing if that's the game. You're like, you've won. What? <laughs> fuck you is mean, that? What? You just moved it over there. Uh, so after the flop, uh, they decided they weren't going to take no for an answer. So on June 27th, 1972, in Sunnyvale, California. Fucking it all happens in Sunnyvale. Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney filed the incorporation papers and moved their items into a 1,700-square-foot office space in Santa Clara, California, the heart of Silicon Valley. This was the beginning of Atari. Apple! This was the beginning of Atari. Listen to me. I know it's going to be Apple. Good God. <laughs> Atari was mainly launched from something that Bushnell saw at a trade show. So he saw this video game system called Odyssey, which was essentially a basic video tennis game. And Bushnell had just hired an engineer named Al Acorn and instructed him to build their version of that. So having learned from his first endeavor, Bushnell wanted to keep this far more simple. So basically the idea was two digital paddles... One ball, players hit the ball back and forth until one player misses, and then the other player gets a point. It's Pong. First one to ten wins. It's Pong. And I'm sure you think it sounds silly. You're like, I've never heard of this game before. No, no. This You're is damn about, right you have This is about me. This ends up about me. Acorn, who called himself an anarchist from Berkeley, went well, to work. Well, this is what anarchists do. Fuck you, I mean, government. If there's ever a great example of an anarchist, it's a guy making two digital paddles hit a ball back and forth. Take That's that. fucking anarchy, Take man. Take that, Congress. 
Uh, and you're right, David. The fruits of their labor would be a little game called Pong. Mm. Pong, the first coin-operated arcade game. But how could they know if people wanted it before it went wide? That's true. So to find out, they set it up in a dive bar to see the results. What about putting a naked lady in a picture next to it? I'm sure that was definitely talked. I mean, that like that's the, that's when they fired the ad department. <laughs> so I was thinking maybe we go with a girl in lingerie. You, that was your idea last time. I know, but I like them. She's really cool. I just want to meet her. She says if I keep getting her work, she might touch my dick. Someday. Uh, touch it? Touch it? So, so they set it up in a dive bar, and within an hour, Bushnell got a call from the bar's manager, who was pissed off because the machine had stopped working and people were upset. Panicked, Bushnell sent Acorn to the bar... And Acorn quickly figured out the problem when he opened the front of the machine and realized that it had been clogged with quarters. The game was just too popular. So they were they were they had already learned how to monetize it. Like they didn't just put it in the bar for free. They no. they had it all they, set up they with made coin it a, and yep. everything. Yes, yes. And so shit was fucking. Well, like, that's they a pretty have, good they indicator. Didn't, they didn't have a big enough hole. hole. <laughs> Oh, we don't have a big enough money hole. You know, we didn't make a big enough hole. <laughs> Maybe if we put a girl with laundry. Get out of here, Doug. Get out of here. No. Uh, she's getting no. some of my things. She'd be great. Uh, so this gave Atari a lot of confidence in the game. So much confidence that instead of sort of outsourcing this, they decided they were going to build the machines and put them into bars and restaurants by themselves rather than licensing it to other companies. Right. So in 1973, Atari got a line of credit from Wells Fargo and started an assembly line. But Atari only had four employees, and they had 500 Pong machines that they were contracted to build. J- now, j- contracted through who? Like they went to different orders. bars? Yeah. They just or, went to different bars and they're like, hey, international hey, too. Yeah, like I mean, it started small, but orders for pong machines started flying. So people started hearing about it. People, Word, know, people saw the ad with so, the girl. So laundry. guys who own bars would go to like a bar convention. Yeah, they go and to. They'd the, be like, hey, they go Larry, to Barcon. Hey, Larry. <laughs> they go to Barcon and they'd be like, hey, Larry, what's going on with your bar? Uh, you know, like, there's this new machine these guys put in where you put a quarter in and then you get digital paddles. What are you talking about? Like a jukebox? No, you dumb fuck. Listen to me. <laughs> a jukebox. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a jukebox. No, it's a game. You put money in. Yeah. It's a game. It's yeah. like a shuttle. Uh, the shuttle board. Air hockey is what your gestures are saying? Oh, the, or you're jerking off someone because um, you just the, keep moving the, one hand back and the, forth the, with the, something the shuttle board or the, the stand. Not, not a one on the... Not like on the love boat. Like one. Do you, you own a bar? Uh, no. I didn't think so. Why are you a bar con? <laughs> I just love bar con. <laughs> so they had to make 500 pong machines, uh, but they only had four employees. So, not content in waiting for a want ad to run, which would take four days, Bushnell drove to the local unemployment office and hired all the homeless, the hippies, and the homeless hippies that he could find. That's amazing. He had a job to do, after all. Despite admitting that drug testing should probably have been made a part of that vetting no, process, no. Bushnell and Atari popped out 10 Pong machines a day. Wow. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty good for a bunch of homeless, degenerate, you know, yeah. and otherwise. And only every now and then you would find a guy, like, living in one at the end. You'd be like, Just but, like, hey, Hank. This is where I keep my vodka. No, buddy. Come, we're going to need you to come out of there. I can fit in here with a bottle. No, no, no. Get, get out of there. We need to make the coin thing bigger. Okay, we can't. Uh, send this one to China. Um, so, uh... The machines would cost $300 to build. That's uh, Atari would sell them for $900, fuck, that which is at a... the time was pretty crazy. I'm going to say that's a third, 20, 15% profit. You're, you're yeah, good. I, you're, do, I know you're math. good. I know math. you're good. Um, it was an international phenomenon, too. Orders were coming in from all over the world. Atari also operated a few machines locally to keep the quarters coming in for whatever reason. But Bushnell was paranoid about the people that he was sending to go collect the quarters oh, getting stolen yeah. from. So he insisted that anyone who went to go empty a machine carried a hatchet. Okay, wait. I'm going to need you to back up. What part? I thought – February 5th! I thought that he was worried that the guys who were going to get the money were going to steal it. No. But he's worried that people are going to attack the guys he's, getting the quarters. Yes, he's worried the people he's sending to so go get the quarters seeing, are going to get attacked. He's seeing and like, he wants them to carry hatchets. like a situation from the 1850s where <laughs> the Wells Fargo stagecoach is cruising across <laughs> yeah. the, and yeah. someone comes out and attacks them. That's yeah. what he sees. Yeah, hatchets. You know what? There were so many fucking quarter robberies in the 70s. Oh my god, they were huge. Yeah, I mean, this is of course dime robberies happened in the 50s, but in the in the in the 70s, it was a quarter, and it was. There there were, there were whole gangs just built on Bigger than quarters. Studio 54 were quarter crimes. 
We'll never forget the quarter crimes. Um, so Atari was growing faster than alfalfa on a farm that Bushnell had led the cops to and needed a bigger space for all of its new employees. So the company – Wait. OK, go. Yeah, you get it. It's just fun. Uh, so the company moved to a roller rink nearby and it became a real fucking party house. Bushnell was what did, what, was the roller rink still operating? No, or was it non, non-operational. Okay, because that would have been. Now we have a movie. Well, uh, buddy, we got a movie. Um, I, it, it turned into like a party house, so it wouldn't surprise me if there maybe were was roller skating. Uh, Bushnell was a real fucking hippie. He wore bell bottoms to work, and he didn't really care much for rules. Drinking was allowed at work, so was pot smoking. I'm sorry. <laughs> There actually wasn't much not allowed. Bushnell told his staff, quote, I don't care when you come to work. I don't care if you come to work. I don't care what you wear. I don't care if you bring your dog. I don't care if you bring a six-pack. Get your job done. You're an adult, and I treat you like an adult. I actually totally agree with that. Totally. Why would you care if someone is whatever they're fucking doing? A guy could be sitting there mainlining cocaine, killing monkeys, and as long as he gets his job done— like yeah. if a guy is doing an eight ball a day and shooting like nine monkeys with mm. uh, an AK-47 out You're, back. Uh, you are starting to but lose me. Getting, but at the same time, getting the machine built, Yeah, what well, can you complain the, about? The monkey murder. The murder of the monkeys. That's were, an issue. <laughs> I got to be honest. They were looking at them weird. Uh, that's, still, that's a lot of monkeys. Um, but I agree. I do agree. I think if you have like people who are yeah. – like like this, like you know, they they have to. Their job is to no, like. It's not like they're driving a bus. No, exactly. So you can just sh- you to get your fucking work done. If you work for me and Gareth, you can mainline all day as long as you get your job done, and as long as there are no monkey murders. Because we are, we are looking for interns. No, again, we're gonna talk off air about the monkey problem because that is a huge issue. Um, so Pong blew up. Uh, Bushnell would I mean it just Atari started to blow up like uh, Bushnell would have most of his business meetings in a hot tub near his house as he said it was a wild environment it was post flower power revolution woman's liberation no AIDS yet and lots of company romances oh no AIDS yet remember those were the fucking days that's probably why he was killing all those monkeys right Uh, for some reason Atari became quickly known as a party company Bushnell promised to tap a keg every Friday that they hit their quota, mm-hmm. and basically this was beer pong before beer pong, because beer and pong. Yeah, right. I get it. Uh, that was part of our culture, smoking pot and doing a lot of cocaine, Al Acorn said. Our attitude was work hard, play hard. So they were doing cocaine. They were doing a lot of cocaine. Yes. Uh, however, in 1974, a problem arose. Oh, fuck. While Bushnell was brilliant uh, with his mind in the tech space, business was fairly new to him, and he failed to copyright Pong's circuit boards. Oh, Jesus. So what, what this meant... Oh, my God. What this meant was that anybody could try to produce their own Pong machine. So all over the world, Pong machines were being ripped off. Only about a quarter of the machines in the market were actually made by Atari. What a fucking idiot. So shit got real fast, and Atari was starting to think that they were going to have to file for bankruptcy. Things got so bad that Bushnell had to cut wages for his assembly line workers, which resulted in workers arriving in shirts that simply read, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, that's a point. Point made. I mean, they probably couldn't afford more letters with the wage they were being paid. Uh, It took a toll on Bushnell's personal life, too, causing a divorce between him and his wife. I can't believe he was married. I mean, I gotta be honest. That's the most shocking thing I've heard in this whole story. And he had two daughters. Uh, so with little choice, Bushnell saw only one way to save the company. A bit of a Hail Mary. Confuse the thieves. He began to mess with the names on the chips inside the game. Atari essentially would switch chip names or create new ones to make the game harder to steal. And when other companies would want to copy it, it would fail. And it worked. Atari was saved. So they thwarted people by fucking up the inside so would, of their machines. They would put a chip in there that was... Wrong. They would mislabel chips. They would mislabel it. Mislabel and then, it. And so then when someone tried and put it in, it wouldn't work. Ah, so then more of the bad. people who were trying to rip it off, they would, um, you know, yeah, be like giving them a wrong recipe. So um, it saved them. So then in 1975, Sears Roebuck approached Atari about the idea of making Pong game consoles that people could use in their homes, which was a fairly revolutionary idea at the time. We're getting around to me now. Okay. But <laughs> Dave Anthony. Uh <laughs> Bushnell, would show, Bushnell showed up to the meeting with Sears in jeans and a T-shirt. The Sears guys all wore suits and ties. Mm-hmm. But in no time, Sears started seeing things Bushnell's way. 
Um, one of their first visits to Atari, Bushnell divided them into two teams, and they raced around the conveyor belts in boxes. What? The two companies went into business Wait, together. Sears? Mm-hmm. The Sears, Sears guys got into boxes and had a box race. Yeah, at Atari. Yeah, the guys who were in suits and ties. They hung out with Bushnell <laughs> enough. Yeah. And they were like, let's box race. Okay, you guys want a box race? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> we don't uh, do sure. this at Sears. Okay, cool. And then they're doing blow, like, faster with the fucking box, dude. Everyone's nose is bleeding. Fucking hate Macy's. Uh, ah! Don't get me started on Macy's. <laughs> oh, that is what they talk about, like at a Sears Coke party. Oh yeah. Yeah. Problem with Macy's is the guys like rubbing his gums. <laughs> yes, Macy's good. Macy's good, not great. Atari went to work and began designing a home TV version of its Pong arcade game. Should have said JC Penny. Yeah. Uh, well. Done. Fuck. Okay. Uh, the home Atari version of Pong had a sporting color. Uh, an on-screen score, and audio from a built-in speaker inside the oddly-shaped pedestal console. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be one of the hottest-selling items for the 1975 holiday shopping season, with people waiting several hours in line to purchase it. Yeah. Pong, we're talking about. Pong. At first, Sears wanted to sell 50,000 units, but demand was high enough that Sears quickly asked Atari to produce 150,000 instead. Holy shit. Atari topped more than $40 million in sales. Now, again, Oh, God, don't say it. A home Pong game was a big effing deal at the time, but Atari wanted to grow. They knew that they were killing it in the home gaming business, but Bushnell also wanted to focus on arcade games. He felt like that was a good market as well. So he hired teams, a team of designers to help conceive and create games. His staff were self-described nerds, but these nerds worked hard and played hard. Slowly but surely, they began coming up with great games and doing the same thing that Pong had done in bars and arcades. Games like Tank and Indy and 800, and even a video game adaptation of the movie Jaws. Which I'm sure was fun. I don't remember that one. Uh, among Bushnell's staff... How does that one work? Jaws? I mean, I'm sure... Uh, my, honestly, my I guess... Think, I think... I kind of have a recollection of it. My guess... It, I th- There's sharks coming up at you and you try to swim across. I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that's like, all it could be, unless yeah. you're the shark trying to eat people, but I don't think people had that fucked up attitude yet. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think the people wanted to be the hero. Um, among Bushnell's young staff was a young nobody named Steve Jobs. Bushnell was taken with Jobs early and promoted him to work on a game called Breakout. Here we go. Bushnell offered Jobs a five grand bonus if he could use as few chips as possible. So Steve Jobs went to his friend, Steve Wozniak, and, helped, and, and he helped him. The team did end up getting the bonus. Uh, but Bushnell and Atari were the winners because the game was said to have turned Pong on its side. Basically, it was a video game version of racquetball, which was very popular at the time. A few months later, Job and Wozniak approached Bushnell with an offer. For $50,000, Bush could be the third partner in a computer company they were starting called oh, Apple. I would jump in. I would jump on this. While Bushnell liked the guys, he passed. That why, investment- would you, why would you... Hmm? Why would you jump on that? It sounds stupid. Apple. Who's going to name a company Apple? Exactly. But he, what he said was that he basically passed on it for the right reasons, but regretted yeah. it. Um, and that investment oh, today God. would he's be worth... He's going to end up living in a garbage can, right? That, he's going to live in a Pong machine. <laughs> that investment today would be worth $670 gajillion billion. So not much. Not much. Not much. Real money. Uh, however, there was still the dream of being able to do what they did with Pong with all of their other games. Fuck yeah. Was there a way to bring games into the comfort of the consumer's home, Dave? Bushnell thought so. Chip technology had changed, and Bushnell thought that Atari could make a console that could use multiple games by exchanging cartridges. However, the cost of something like that would be huge. Bushnell couldn't cover the whole cost. So to pull it off, a 33-year-old Bushnell needed more money to cover the cost of production, and there was only one way to get it. He had sell, to sell Atari. Sell, uh, I thought you were going to say sell heroin. Sell heroin. He had to sell Atari. Sold Atari. To make Atari. To make Atari bigger. So <laughs> that's just what Bushnell did. Atari was hot, and Warner Communications knew it. They wanted to buy Atari, so to show them how much they wanted, the Warner Company set a private jet back to pick up Bushnell and some of his other hippie friends. Yeah. And when they got on the plane, there sat Clint Eastwood, who, along what? with his girlfriend, were headed to New York to screen Eastwood's latest movie, where he squints angrily. When the team landed, <laughs> they were given the VIP treatment. They got rooms on the top floor of the Waldorf Astoria and even got to watch Eastwood's film with Eastwood and the company. That's not bad. They already won. That's pretty good, they right? They should give Atari up for that. 
they, they did. He sold it. Uh, Bushnell sold Atari for just. Uh, Bushnell had just started Atari four years earlier, and now had just sold it for twenty eight million dollars. That's not enough. Which is a lot for back then. Is it? It was back then. You're not wrong. Part of the deal, though, stated that Bushnell would still be the chair of Atari, a deal which got him $15 million. Oh. Yeah. So it's kind of the best. Uh, yeah. All right. He's right? Still, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, until he gets fired. Uh, well, and with that, with the $15 million that he got, he bought a boat and a private jet Fuck with the yeah. same name. Well, that's what you do with your money. He bought, and he named them both. Well, what else are you going to name your boat? He didn't, yeah, I haven't told you the name yet. Atari. Pong. <laughs> Fucking jumping in. Finally, in October 1977, it happened. The Atari Video Computer System model number 2600 was, ma- meant, was set to make its debut. With a retail price of between $199 to $229, mm. the system was a multiprocessor-based proga- programmable game console. It included two joysticks, two paddle controllers. It came with two player games and uh, 27 variations called Combat. The console design was cool and hoped to have a selling life of two to three years, that year, it sold 250,000 units. The next year, Atari overestimated its sales and only sold, sold 550,000 out of the 800,000 they had produced. Uh-oh. Quite the miscalculation they on Atari's part. They fucked up. However, Dave, that would not be the last time Atari's eyes were bigger than the consumer's belly. Don't, don't say it. Don't say it. Steve Liebman. You just He's the first, Jewish first guy and first guy in my neighborhood to get Atari. Okay, good. We'll let that. We'll we'll keep that in mind. Frogger for what it's about you. Great, good to hear. Frogger, Frogger, great game. Yeah. Uh, Bushnell hated the error when they made eight hundred thousand and only sold five hundred fifty thousand. He hated the error and he began to worry that Warner was putting too much emphasis on home gaming and not enough on broad appeal of Atari. After locking horns for long enough, Bushnell left the company that he had started. By nineteen eighty two, Atari was worth two billion dollars. <laughs> Bushnell walked away. Twenty-eight million. He sold over twenty-eight. Two billion. Bushnell started a new business venture, uh, sort of like public gaming. He opened a restaurant called Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, I gotta go. What? <laughs> what? The dude doing cocaine, making Sears racing boxes, having hot tub meetings. Oh, fuck. And he opened up Chuck E. Diseases. He opened up Chuck E. Cheese. Oh my God! Do you have any kids? He sickened. I mean, I don't think in his design he was like, and the ball pit's where everyone goes to puke. <laughs> Every kid will puke in the ball pit. He fucking, he went from creating one of the greatest things ever to one of the worst things ever. Jackie Cheese did great, it's though. A, I mean, that was huge. It, it's a fucking Yeah, but I think, I think you are judging, I will say this, I think you are judging Chuck E. Cheese today on what Chuck E. Cheese was back then. Okay. Chuck E. Cheese used to be great. Now it is basically yeah. you're inside a rat's anus. But it no, used to not be like Yeah, now it's a concentration camp. Yeah, now it is. Actually, I do believe that they are killing people in the back. Uh, still, though, with all that going on, in, 1970, in 1979, people seemingly began to realize that this console could do way more than just, uh, what, the VC, way more than just what Pong was doing. And the VCS was the best-selling Christmas gift that year due to its exclusive content. And one million units were sold. Jesus. The hits kept coming. Games like Codebreaker, Hangman, Space Invaders, Breakout, Centipede, Miss Pac-Man were all names that started to captivate the fan base. As things were cooking at Atari, they hired a new game designer, a man named Howard Scott Warshaw. Howard was a graduate of Tulane University. Warshaw finished his bachelor's degree within three years with a double major in math and economics, and he got a job at Hewlett-Packard before taking a job with Atari. Warsaw saw quickly that he became a standout at Atari when he presented them with his first game called Yar's Revenge. Do you remember that game? Nope. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, I don't either. Uh, the ga- I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I remember Atari a little bit, not a ton. Oh, I remember it a lot. Like, I remember, like, I, I mean, it was around when I was a kid, but yeah. it wasn't... I think it was coming, you know, we were right. coming off of Atari. You were going into a television. Um, so the game... Uh, Yar's Revenge, the game had a great narrative and was accompanied by a comic book explaining the history of the game. Basically, Dave, Yar's Revenge featured insectoid space, uh, an insectoid spaceship, Uh Yar, uh, that was ranged against an enemy ship, Cotile, encased in a defensive barricade. Wait, you're talking about Scientology. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Yar avoids nasty missiles while shooting at or nibbling at the shield. This nibbling powers up a super weapon that can be used to destroy the Kotile, which itself powers up and attacks Yar from time to time. And at the end of the game, you become Tom Cruise. <laughs> So you want to get to that level. Yep. You want to either be right. uh, David Miscavige or Tom Cruise. That's right. At uh, the end. You're Miscavige. Now go find your wife. You're clear. Go find your wife. You can marry a woman. Uh, Warsar admits that the first round of development of the Yars game did not go great. Uh, quote, the uh, control scheme sucked. The problem was in trying to maneuver the ship while controlling the weapon. So people uh, who played it early found it a little irksome and difficult. But instead of trying to fix the particular problem, he changed the entire game. Warsaw was a perfectionist, um, and it should be noted that he had no experience in game development. All he did to get ready to program games was read the programming manual for the 2600. What? That was it. What? So he's a fucking genius. Well, he's fucking scary. He should be put down. He's uh, the kind it, of the guy who's going to ruin the world. You know, what, do you want to shoot him out back with the monkeys? Yes. Uh, and Yar, Yar's revenge was huge. When it hit the market, Never it, heard of it, it blew up, and it didn't. It didn't go to your town. Uh, it is still thought of by a lot of gamers as Atari's best game. Really? Yes. So Frogger, you, you really like Frogger? No. Pitfall. Now Pitfall, if I remember, mm. is where you kind of swing on like vines across yes. holes, right? Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Much. It's it's the closest thing we had to Indiana Jones. <gasps> Buckle the fuck up. Scott Warshaw had gained the confidence of his bosses and was given the task of adapting Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark. Pitfall! As a video game. The film had cleaned up at the box office that year, so Warsaw gladly accepted the challenge and immediately was sent to Universal Studios to meet with Steven Spielberg. So the two met up. And over a game of Yars, they discussed the ideas for the Raiders of the Lost Ark video game. Mm -hmm. Shortly after, Howard began uh, coding his epic treasure hunt. The intrepid archaeologist, Mr. Jones, begins his video game quest unarmed. But soon, he picks up his trademark whip and is battling snakes, detonating grenades, and diligently scouring the marketplace for handy items. Now, as you and I both know, Dave, when you hear the description of a game like this, there is a chasm between what you're hearing and what it actually looked like. Yes. The Indiana Jones character looked more like a yellow squirt of piss, and his whip looked more like a stick than anything. Right. I remember. I can picture it. I remember. But still, people went apeshit. Yeah. Quote, when I was coding Raiders, I really tried to get into character. I wore the hat, <laughs> and I had a real 10-foot leather bullwhip. Man, it was so loud, like a gunshot. If people were snooping around the building, I'd sneak up behind them, and I'd crack that whip. Oh. They'd jump out of their suits, and they'd be like, hey, how you doing? Well, this is what the guy who – I know the guy who made Frogger did that too. He dressed up like a frog. And he <laughs> He's fucking, run through traffic. That's the thing they don't know is most guys who are creating an Atari game, uh, they would dress up like the character. Dude, there's a the Qbert. I- there's a, a whole – The idea of the Frogger. Miss Pac-Man is walking around. So we lost another Frogger in traffic. <laughs> Why do we Can keep losing all these – Can they not go into traffic? You, that's the idea. They're not supposed to I go know, into traffic. I know, but tra- they don't have to do that. They can just program the game. You're, what you're saying is is absolutely it's accurate. Hard. He should have backed away it's when he saw the cars coming. It's hard to cross the highway when you're not in a frog outfit. Can I tell you something? Go I ahead. think, I think it's going to be worth it when well, people see how great Frogger is. Okay. We need another guy, though. we got to hire another guy. Yeah. No. We lost four Froggers today. I mean, I'm not saying that, that it's a good plan. Um, so... So when Warsaw went to present the game to Spielberg, the Indiana Jones game, Spielberg approved of the game. In June 1982, just prior to its official release, he previewed – Warsaw went and previewed Raiders at the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. Oh, it's going to blow up. By screening a specially filmed demo of himself completing the game and providing a running commentary as as he went. Uh, It particularly impressed one member of the audience – I played the tape to Spielberg, and at the end of it, he turns to me and said, Wow, that was really great. It's just like a movie. It was one of the most gratifying moments of my entire life, Warshaw said. Spielberg was not alone in his admiration. The game went on to be another million seller for Howard. Jesus Christ. But its success was a double-edged sword. See, this would not be the last time Spielberg and Warshaw would work together. Oh. For in 1982, a little film called E.T. Never heard of Was it. getting ready to hit the world. You've never heard of E.T.? No. <clears throat> the movie, <laughs> E.T., The Extraterrestrial. I know what an extraterrestrial is, yeah. But do you know the movie E.T.? No, I don't. Let me walk you through it. 
It was a hit from the day it was released, and it quickly became one of the most beloved movies of all time what? by people who don't have blackened hearts. You're saying about ordinary people. Nope. E.T. The film was about a 10-year-old boy, Elliot, who befriended a little lost alien. Elliot named the alien E.T. This is where it should start clicking for you. And did his best to hide him from the adults. Mm-hmm. Soon, Elliot's two siblings, Gertie and Michael, discovered E.T.'s existence and helped. You're thinking of Chappie. You know the deal. Reese's Pieces, phone home, fly the bike in the basket, finger lights up. Most people know the deal. You don't, but that, but it would be important for you I've to know that. I've seen Chappie. It sounds the same. Chappie. Oh, God, Jesus. <laughs> Chappie. <laughs> Insanely Chappie. violent movie. Chappie is? Yeah, they, they totally... Whoever marketed it, it was so, it was insanely violent. So like they got to marketing and they were like, "This is too violent. Let's make, make it, it look like make it a film with heart." It wasn't goofy at all. I'm Chappy. Yeah, that yeah. was not the movie. Uh, <laughs> Chappy shout out. Uh, so the storyline of ET had its beginnings in director Steven Spielberg's own past. When Spielberg's parents divorced in 1960, Spielberg invented an imaginary alien to keep him company. Well, I mean, who hasn't done that? <laughs> That's just classic divorce kid stuff. <laughs> I know when mine split. <laughs> hey, what about not telling people that? <laughs> that is one of those things that he probably said was like, I just said it one oh, time, one interview. Uh, Should not have done that. I was on board with Spielberg for a while. Uh, the opening weekend of E.T. was huge. It grossed $11.9 million, which now sounds like nothing, then, but yeah. used to be a lot of money. And E.T. stayed at the top of the this movie was charts. before multiplexes. That's right. Yeah, this is before that. Uh, E.T. stayed at the top of the movie charts for over four months. At the time, it was the largest grossing movie ever made. Oh, shit. The new Atari was also a fan of E.T., they saw huge potential to follow up the success of the Raiders game with an E.T. video game. They thought E.T. could not only be bigger, but could be a huge holiday seller. Well, you just, I mean, you make a game of him phoning home, and you nailed it. Yeah. You just dial zero, and he's like, Mom, Mom. you left me. And then, like, I miss you guys so much, I invented a little Jewish director to hang out with. <laughs> wow. Uh, so they, they wanted to make the E.T. video game, but for some Dumb reason. Atari waited a long time to negotiate the licensing rights for E.T. with Spielberg. Uh, Spielberg wanted Warshaw to make the game. Uh, These talks kept going and going and going, and they continued deep into July. The price of the license, once agreed upon, was a measly $22 million. So now, Atari had spent $22 million on the game they needed to have done by September 1st in order to get it ready for a Christmas rollout. What's the date? This is the end of July. They need to have it done by September That's 1. That's not a thing. So it's a little, that leaves them a little over five weeks for development. That's not a real thing. Games normally <laughs> took four, five, six, a year to yeah. develop, yeah, right? That's not. <laughs> but here. I feel like this isn't going to go Atari well. had painted themselves into a corner. Oh, God. They wanted this to be the holiday seller they envisioned. Oh, wow. So with only five weeks left, they needed to get a developer to say yes to completing the game and undertaking the task. This leads to a burial in the desert. In late summer of 1982, Kasser, who was the new head of Atari, uh, called Warshaw and offered him a chance to develop the game. E.T. was an emergency situation that the company created, said Warshaw. They paid too much for the license and left us too little time to do the game. Regardless, Warshaw accepted the challenge. He was on board. Oh, God. Now, compounding the already tight deadline, Warshaw had a mere two days to come up with the game's design document before presenting it to Spielberg in Los Angeles. Two days? I mean, he had two days to come up with the game. He had two days to come up with the whole idea of the game and then go present it to Spielberg, let, let alone having to put the wheels in motion. All right, so you get, you get on a bike, you ride your spaceship. Cool. I'm in. That's it. That's really bad. Thanks. Uh, the presentation to Spielberg. Why wouldn't they? Ha- why wouldn't they just say, "Hey, think about the idea we're negotiating"? Why don't you already start thinking about yeah, it? Yeah, that's so true. He already Honestly. works for the fucking company. But you know how these places? I mean, you know how like a big dumb company is. They're probably like. I don't think. I think that's. I think they're generalizing. They're probably. They probably are like at that point. They're like, we don't want to waste money having someone develop a game that we might not never do. We may never do. You and know, then don't negotiate it, motherfucker. Okay, you think you're talking to them? You're talking to me. Um, the presentation to Spielberg went less than stellar. We're presenting the idea. I laid out the whole plan, and at the end of the presentation, Spielberg looks at me and says, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man, Warshaw said? In retrospect, that might have not been such a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, where he's gobbling up Reese's Pieces? Yeah. 
Uh, like, essentially, yeah. Yeah. He was like, just make him eat shit. And he was like, no, this is a mission. To take advantage of every minute as, as at his disposal, he had a developer workstation installed in way, his home. By the way, if I, if I am remembering correctly, they went to M&M's first and said, hey, can you put M&M's in this? And M&M said no. Is that right? Yeah. And, then they, and then they came up with Reese's oh, Pieces. So stupid. Yeah. God. A lot yeah. of fuck-ups around. Another, another, another black yeah. flag the whole, in the, the sands whole of movie, M&M's. The whole movie changed America. I agree. Um, so Warshaw got the uh, developer workstation installed in his home. He intended to make the game an innovative adaptation of the film. And Atari liked what he said and thought that it would achieve high sale figures mm. based on the connection with the film. Or no sale figures. Well, you don't know that. Why? He's already come up with it in two days. Okay. I mean, it sounds pretty good. Two, day, two days is normally how they do it. Atari? Atari had produced around 4 million cartridges of E.T. Although... They never expected to sell them all. They considered a degree of overproduction sound if it meant that people could be guaranteed to make a purchase in any store. Thank and you. retailers were encouraged to get their orders early. Yep. Indeed, sale figures were initially impressive. And in countless Christmas stockings and American children uh, that American children were opening uh, gr- gift-wrapped on Christmas. Mm. Uh, everybody then, was excited to fire up their, their Atari with E.T. Running over their console and putting it in. Yeah. And then E.T. did. But I also love the idea that they were like, it is better to have enough than to not have enough. Like, if you think about, like, today. Yeah, that's completely Like, in the wrong. market. Not only do you not do that just based on finance, but you also want to have you the thing where s- you're like, where the fuck is it? Yeah, I can't find a so- Tickle Me Elmo. You want it to sell out. But and then they, Atari like, wanted everybody, everybody to be Everybody gets have. one. So they made four million cartridges. And uh, kids started playing them. As in the film, the game starts because E.T. crashed to Earth in his spaceship. The object of the game is to guide E.T. around the map searching for three pieces of his phone. There are a total seven different screens. Some screens contain wells or pits. The three pieces of his phone are down these wells. So it's wise to check every single one of these pits. Once you had the part, you'd be able to find the phone and phone home. It sounds really easy and fun. No, it doesn't sound fun. Sadly, (laughs) it was far too easy to fall into the pits. And once you were in a pit, you couldn't get out. <laughs> so getting out of the pits was the pits. <laughs> so it's like jail. It's, it's e- E.T. in prison. He j- it, like, once you fall in a pit, you're fucked. He's supposed to levitate out of the pit, uh-huh. but that was easier said than done. The little fucker could not get out. It was a design flaw due to the rush that Atari put on it. Whoops. So gamers would repeatedly fall back into the pit, during which time scientists and FBI agents would just appear from out of nowhere, re-abduct E.T. Wait, what's happening? And after that, you would lose all the phone parts you'd collected and have to start all over again. And then so the hail's out. And people hated it. And then the Hells Angels would come in and just murder you at the bottom but of the pit. You, you know what it's like when you have a game that's working? Yeah. And, I mean, I don't play a lot of video games, but when you have one that's working and you're frustrated by it, yeah. like you can't, you can't, like you can't, you can't beat the main thing, whatever the fuck yeah, it is. it happens all the time. But imagine one where you can't no you, you can't no, get off of the first screen there, there are games when you where you where you're playing along you're playing along and all of a sudden you walk into this place and you're supposed to do something different you've never done before and you just walk around this room going what is happening yeah, yeah. but there's normally something you're going to figure something out with those but games sometimes you don't you just like fucking you go look it up online which you can't do back then well i also i cannot imagine if for little kids, like, oh my god, he won't get out of the well. But he, and, and then he gets arrested. Kid, honestly, like for little kids to hate a video game of ET, oh. it has to be really bad. Yeah. I also just love the vi- the idea that you fall in these pits and you're like, god damn it, and then an FBI agent just comes down there and takes away all the shit you've been. You're like, I hate, I hate this game. So ET is often cited also as one making, of the worst video games ever released. Making kids hate the FBI on top of it all. <laughs> yeah. Right. Listen, that's. I mean, we're dealing with that right now. Um, angry parents real. were soon driving back to stores and demanding a refund. Unhappy wow. retail stores were then left to send the cartridges back to Atari. With customers returning the unsold cartridges in the millions at an alarming rate, E.T. posed an immediate problem for Atari. Suddenly, a game with a retail price of $49 was being sold in dollar bargain bins at stores. Uh, and by the time Atari pulled 49 the $49? $49. Back then? I guess, yeah. Holy fuck. It was supposed to be the hottest. I know, but that's how much games almost cost now. So Atari eventually pulled the plug, and losses on the E.T. game were around $100 million. (laughs) E.T. 
Well, this is what happens when the suits are in charge. It's true. I mean, the the yeah, and and if you think like I was saying before, like that Bushnell, like what he was saying was don't just concentrate on the home video game market. Right. Like he saw Atari as a brand, and they put all their eggs into ET's leaky fucking pit basket. <laughs> is that the name of it? That is, yeah. No, E.T.'s Leaky Pit Basket? Welcome to E.T.'s Leaky Pit Basket. The title's terrible. It's a terrible name. Terrible name. It doesn't work. I mean, it actually works. For what they're saying, no, it, is, it ma- actually is an accurate title. But you know what? Now that I played the game, it makes sense. It's a terrible title because the game's awful. Um, so what were they going to do with 4 million E.T. games? What would Atari do with all them? Well, this, now I know. The rumor started as a myth. Uh, As most myths go, Atari was so ashamed of the game that they internally made a decision to bury millions of unsold (laughs) cartridges in the New Mexican desert and cover them with a slab of concrete. Could that be, though? When you hear it, it sounds so crazy. Why would they do it? Concrete? Yeah, cover it up. Like it's a fucking murder. Like it's a murder. Like it is a murder. So as with most myths... This is what they did with Hoffa. As with most myths, there was no real logic to it. But it caught fire. It became a joke. And it further hurt the feelings of Warshaw, who carried guilt over the game with him, even though it really wasn't his fault because he had no time. So Warshaw believed that the Atari Silicon mass grave was nothing more than a rumor. Doesn't make any sense, but as soon as you see it come from a place of making sense, you're losing touch with Atari, he said laughing. But honestly, what company in financial trouble does that? That's That's why I always figured it wasn't there. As the years went on, people wanted to know if it was true. Was there really an E.T. landfill in New Mexico? Why had the rumors persisted so much? We may may never know. Would be the attitude of people had until years ago. But a movement grew. It grew momentum. Believers wanted proof (laughs) of the existence. And skeptics wanted to put it to bed. So finally... Is this Gamergate? This is Gamergate. So finally... The rumors were to be put to rest when in 2014, Microsoft funded a documentary which was to involve an excavation of the landfill site. Warshaw himself made the trip to see if it was true oh or not. Oh, my God. Hundreds of gamers showed up. It was like a concert. During vicious sandstorms, a team of archaeologists began to dig for their ark. Nothing was found for a while. As the dig went on, they pulled up a newspaper. Oh. From 1983. Oh, shit. The same year the burial was thought to have taken place. Who buried it with a newspaper? A good sign that they were on the right track. Is that a good sign or just weird? The dig took ages and ages. And then Eureka. The diggers confirmed that they had found it. Atari had, for some insane reason, (laughs) buried all the E.T. games in the desert. The Alamogordo burial, that's the name of the city it was, did include E.T. cartridges among many other titles. James Heller, the former Atari manager who was in charge of the original burial, was also on hand at the excavation and later revealed to the Associated Press that 728,000 cartridges of various titles were buried. And I don't know why they put newspaper, but they put – they basically did a layer of concrete – Right. And then they did, like, a layer of junk of, like, newspapers and just, like, other bullshit. To hide so people hide wouldn't so dig people through. Would, yeah, because they were so it's their great secret. embarrassed like, by who, E.T. What? <laughs> who does that? It's cr- it's. <laughs> what are we going to do with these games? Bury them. I can't have this be a thing. But I, I, remember, I remember hearing about this before they had dug it up. And hearing it, and it was such I a didn't, crazy. I only heard about. I, I heard about when they dug up all the ET games, but I didn't hear. I I never heard of anything until then. And I I, I, I remember even, hearing it, and it was such a weirdo. It happened like a couple years or a year ago, and I remember hearing about it, and I, I just went, "That's weird." And I never yeah. thought about it again. No, they did. But apparently, they you it. thought about it a lot. Thank you. So there it was. A company that was once considered the greatest technolo- technology company in the world had been reduced to burying games in the sand, <laughs> like Jose does with his waist. Atari had made video games what they were, and now a video game E.T. landfill in New Mexico was confirmed. For Warshaw, the dig was somewhat therapeutic. He tried to shake his E.T. past, but when he saw the fanfare and all that were drawn to the dig, he got the monkey off his back. Not because someone shot it, Dave. True classic gamers gamers defend E.T. the game. Once, once you could get away from the pit issue, Warshaw had made a pretty good game. What do you mean? Once you five get weeks, the no less. Pit they issue. came. They they came out with like an online version oh, where they off. fixed it, oh, where fuck. you can actually play the game instead of spending your life in a goddamn pit. <laughs> 
The E.T. game, still in its original box, is sold for $1,537. Holy shit. Uh, The interest in the game has gone global. Online bidders from other countries, including Germany and Sweden, snapped up the items. As a matter of fact, a museum in Rome opened an exhibit on the dig that includes dirt from the landfill. In the gaming world, E.T. is and was nothing short of a phenomenon. Warshaw has left the gaming game. And he now works as a successful psychotherapist in Silicon Valley. And like our sweet Hugh Glass. I'm s- yeah. I'm sorry. Did you say the gaming game? Yeah, he left the gaming game. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. And like our sweet Hugh Glass, Leonardo DiCaprio has been in talks to portray no. Bushnell in wow. a biopic. Wow. In a biopic. Well, that's definitely a movie. R.I.P. Atari. R.I.P. Atari. That's wow. it. That's the story of Atari. That's fucking insane. And Nolan Bushnell. So Atari doesn't exist anymore as a company? It does not exist as a company anymore. I don't think. I mean, I think there might be some, like, small version, but it's definitely not, you know. I mean, it, it went under. And the truth is, the, like, the more you read about this stuff, the more that it's like this, like you were saying. I mean, it was Apple. Like, Atari was yeah. Apple. Atari was doing all those things that were on the right track. It's just that when... Bushnell left. Right, that was it. That was it because the suits took over. Yeah. So the deal is that he sold. Lo- he's. I mean, he's. You know, uh, he made a shitload more. Money right. He made. He made, did fine. I mean, he made yeah. Chuck E. Cheese's. So yeah. he's. I mean, anybody who made Chuck E. Cheese. But that dude is a badass. Yeah, that's pretty impressive to yeah. go to go from Atari to Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. That's some shiznit. So there you go. There's our reverse dollop. That was good. Yeah. I like your stories. I'm gonna go, and this is my room. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get out of here, and this is where I'm staying. All right, buddy, I got a phone home. <laughs> the pit. And I want to say one more thing. I want to thank my friend Alex Burns for uh, helping me with some of that story. He gave oh. me some interesting uh, factoids for that. So nice, thank you, Burns. Nice job, Allie. His name's. Uh, sorry, bud. <laughs> oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth. You know from this. Uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it. After it. Let's see you there. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is Gareth. Yes, the same guy. I Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun half hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help 